Previously on the British Broadcasting Century podcast, the last episode summarised by Captain P.P. Eckersley. The first microphones that we had were the stretched diaphragm Western Electric. And um, if you got too far away, they went... But there was one H.J. Round who said, why should we have American microphones? And um, with an annular coil, a magnetic field, and um, some Vaseline, he uh, produced a moving coil microphone, which was greatly superior, and we adopted that microphone. Yes, while Peter Eckersley was broadcasting fun and games from his Essex hut, British Broadcasting's new professional era was kicking in at the BBC stations. A 2LO orchestra of eight in London, a 2ZY orchestra of 12 in Manchester, live bands in Birmingham and Newcastle. But what happens when you take the equipment out of the studio on a very long lead? This time, Britain's first outside broadcast. They all said it couldn't be done. They all said it shouldn't be done. It's the magic flute on the magic box in your front room. This is the first OB live opera broadcasts on the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London Calling. Hello, hello, Paul Carenza here. How are you? Hope you're doing well. Thank you for joining us on the British Broadcasting Century podcast here in this centenary year of British Broadcasting. This is the unofficial history of British Broadcasting. We are not linked in any way with the BBC. And of course, we're not talking entirely about the BBC, but British Broadcasting as a whole. Now, of course, back in early 1923, that meant the BBC. Apart from Peter Eckersley and his hut in Essex, the only radio you would generally hear as professional broadcasting was the British Broadcasting Company. Although you might have heard the Dutch concerts. More on that next time. But right now, we're talking about the first OB in Britain. This wasn't the first outside broadcast globally. That was in America, Leader Forest, the radio pioneer from the Metropolitan Opera House. But yes, opera, always seemingly the first go-to place for the outside broadcast. Still, though, the BBC plans in January 1923 were huge and pretty last minute. Arthur Burroughs, that radio prophet we've referred to so many times, first voice of the BBC, director of programmes. Our broadcasts from Marconi House soon gained an audience of perhaps 30,000 listeners. He said that these opera broadcasts were among the most ambitious and most successful series of transmissions yet attempted on this or the other side of the Atlantic. And Burroughs was playing a key role in making these first opera broadcasts happen. So that first week in January 1923, where we've been loitering for the last few episodes, the idea of an opera broadcast, an outside broadcast, was still a bit of a, a pipe dream. Pipe being the operative word, they would need lots of it to make it happen. In that first week of January, Burroughs had lunch at the Metropole on Piccadilly Circus with a listener. And that listener was William Crampton of Weybridge, a radio amateur with a day job as an engineer at Covent Garden's Royal Opera House. William Crampton just wondered to Burroughs if it was possible to broadcast part of the performance from the upcoming B&O Company season at Covent Garden. Arthur Burroughs thought it possible. It was just a hypothetical over lunch, really. But they only had days to plan this. You see, January the 8th was when the magic flute would be staged and the opera season would then be drawing to a close over a few weeks in January. You either do this now or you wait months. So Arthur Burroughs got John Reith on board. Of course, this was a BBC at the time with only six or so employees. And then he got the BNOC on board, the opera company themselves, and the Covent Garden Opera House. All of them said yes. Cecil Lewis. The first outside broadcast. Programmes need not come to the studio. 
to us, we could go to them. This meant an endless new vista of possibilities, and we seized on it avidly. Now, it would be very easy for me as a host to just say, so then they broadcast the opera, the first OB in British broadcasting. But we don't do that on this podcast. We go the long way around. So let's give you the full build-up before the finale that is January the 8th's industry-changing live opera broadcast. And it cannot be understated just how significant this was. Now we begin with the build-up. We must set the scene, starting a few days earlier, with the overture. So in the week before the opera broadcast, early January, BBC board director Sir William Noble leapt into action to get the GPO on board, the General Post Office. Once you decide you want to broadcast in an outside capacity from the Opera House, you need a bit of help. He wasn't asking the post office for a licence. The BBC licence would cover this. And in fact, the BBC licence hadn't arrived yet at this point. So yes, they were still a pirate station, in fact. But now, how do you link up the Royal Opera House with Marconi House, the studio, the transmitter, about a quarter of a mile away? Well, you install a huge underground cable. Not a hugely long way, but it's far enough. So as a quarter of a mile of cable was laid down, covered in lead casing, and all of that happened within 36 hours. So while they're planning and doing that, other broadcasting plans were afoot. January 5th, 1923. What of Scotland? Yes, I didn't see that coming, did you? You see, it's not all tied to London, you know. Well, an article on January the 5th in the Scotsman newspaper reminds us that broadcasting there still had a long way to go. When the wireless broadcasting scheme was outlined, Scotland was to have two stations, one at Aberdeen, the other at Edinburgh or Glasgow. The scheme has been reconsidered. I understand that Aberdeen proposal has been dropped. Scotland will now be served by a single station, erected at Glasgow. The Scottish station will be of superior power compared with the six stations south of the border. The reason for the change is principally economy. Each station costs £20,000 per annum. It was also felt that the population of the north of Scotland hardly justified a separate station at Aberdeen, particularly when, by increasing the power of the Glasgow station, an equally efficient service could be given. Uh, Clearly the author of that article was well-travelled via Wales, Bangladesh and Norway judging by the accent. The Scottish station, I am assured, will open in a few weeks' time. The next day, the Aberdeen Press Journal and Mail were having none of it. Let's see where they were from. Sir, I notice in today's press and journal in the London letter that Aberdeen is to have no broadcasting station. This is another snob to Scotland. Is Scotland of so little importance in comparison with England that she is only to be allowed one broadcasting station, and England five? And that one far to the south, and in a district which is already covered by Newcastle and Manchester. This is a matter that we in the north will certainly not take lying down. And seeing that the postmaster general has apparently had a voice in the matter, it is surely up to him, when granting licenses to the broadcasting company for the sole right of broadcasting, to see that all parts of the country are equally well served. If the matter is one of expense, why the stations so near each other is Birmingham and Manchester? We in Aberdeen expected great things of the Newcastle station when it started, but so far, for strength of signal, it is not any better than the others, and often not so good, notwithstanding that in a straight line the distance for about three-quarters of the way is over sea. If we want to get music or speech without fading, we have got to listen to Germany or France or, or Holland, yours, etc. Aberdeen, January 5th, 1923. More of the Holland station next time, and who knows what accents that will throw up. Throw up being the operative word. And indeed, we'll be bringing you a whole episode on the Glasgow station and how that started up, although I may drop the accent by then. 
Friday, January the 5th, meanwhile, in Marconi House, back down in that there, London, it was not just the usual broadcasting that was happening. No, there was something else happening from the studio. Not that the listeners would know. No, on air, the listeners would hear, as usual, Children's Hour, this time with Uncle Caractacus, Cecil Lewis. He was joined by Miss Helen Defoy with Children's Songs. Then the 2LO Orchestra had baritone David Openshaw. Entertainer Emile Clare returned with a radio-themed act called Wireless in the Home by Prentice. Had an elocutionist on 2LO, Alfred Hearn, with monologues The Land of Might Have Been by Leslie Harris, and a poem At a certain university not many years ago, the student, there lived a student learned wise and so by actor Bransby Williams. In his room a fair damsel appears. What sister match, cried he with unbelief. Bransby Williams was actually one of the first actors to play Scrooge in a broadcast version. This lady is my sister, sir, the old man smiled and quick to make reply, said, I beg your pardon, sister, oh, aye, 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 and the same old lie. From 9.15 to 9.30 that evening of January the 5th, 1923, Cecil Lewis, Uncle Caractacus, returned, giving a rare talk himself on air. The discoveries in Egypt. But something else, like I say, was happening in the studio that night. Overture complete. It's time for Act One, the technical rehearsal. Yes, ahead of the opera broadcasts, this was the night of the very first ever test transmissions of an outside broadcast in Britain. So by now there was this plan afoot to broadcast in a few days' time from the Royal Opera House, and the engineers needed to test the link-up. They'd hired two Western Electric double-button microphones. So this is different microphones from the ones we mentioned last time. Remember, the BBC was made up at this point by six different wireless companies coming together. So while Captain Round of the Marconi Company gave us last week's round-moving coil mic, the Western Electric microphones were from America, and they were different and actually very good quality. They're what you would have found at the Birmingham 5IT studio. The microphones in those days, of course, were not so highly efficient as they are today. Here's Birmingham's chief engineer, A. E. Thompson. We had what is called a double-button carbon microphone, which was undoubtedly the best microphone available in those days. But even so, it, 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 you had to stand at a reasonable distance from it, uh, uh, say four or five feet, you see. And if you had a military band and you wanted to get all the instruments over, you had to place them in certain positions around the microphone so that they, they, you may preserve the balance. So these mics were positioned in the footlights of the Royal Opera House to pick up a wide range of sound, not just the performers, but the audience as well. No more shouting into the microphone up close. No, these condenser mics could pick up the entire room. And in the Royal Opera House, that is quite a room. Crucial for immersing listeners into the atmosphere of the place. There's a three-valve amplifier put under the stage, and then that quarter mile of cable, which snaked through central London to Marconi House. There was a telephone line separately as well, connecting the Western Electric engineers, a Mr Richard and a Mr Wright, under the Opera House stage where they were, and that would link them up with the Marconi House transmitter room. All of this was tested on January the 5th, and so, for the first time, John Reith actually attended Marconi House in person to see broadcasting in action. Yes, it's odd to think that at this point he'd just been in the office. He'd never actually had a chance to see what it was like to broadcast. In fact, he was there so rarely that 2LO manager Stanton Jeffries saw Reith standing awkwardly. He mistook him for a reporter, asked him if he would like to wait outside. Whoops. Yes, given Reith wanted his voice recognised on the phone, I can only imagine that Stanton Jeffries, not knowing his own boss, probably didn't go down too well. After visiting the studio, the next day was Saturday, the 6th of January. Can you guess what John Reith did for the first time on January the 6th? All right, I'll tell you. 
For the first time, John Reith listened to the radio. Yes, bonkers to think he had had the job since last month. He'd been general manager of the BBC for several weeks at this point, And only now did Reith actually try listening to the radio. Him and his wife Muriel were at the house of his old Aberdeen friend, Sir James Murray, which maybe implies to me that, yes, he didn't even have a wireless set of his own at this point. Probably didn't even have a licence, but then again, the BBC didn't either. But no, he'd never heard radio until January the 6th, 1923. What did he hear then on the 6th of January? It was more from the 2LO orchestra, some Gilbert and Sullivan, some Verdi, Fred Gibson the comedian makes the return as the entertainer, some foxtrots as usual, there was a soprano that evening, a tenor, and concluding the evening, the finale of a classical piece, Fireflies, by Roger Eckersley. Yes, the brother of Peter Eckersley. Roger Eckersley was a sometime composer, briefly a chicken farmer, and he would join the BBC within a couple of years, eventually taking over from Arthur Burroughs as head of programmes. So in this weird Burroughs versus Eckersley saga that I've been exploring on stage in my little one-man play, The First Broadcast, you're very welcome, paulgrenzer.com slash tour for details of that play. No, Burroughs versus Eckersley have been rumbling on, I suppose, since at least early 1922, when Eckersley went wild on the mic and Burroughs was trying to rein him in from London, sending him artists and gramophone records and gramophone players that he would even arrange sponsorship for. But at this point in our timeline, we're waiting for Peter Eckersley to join the BBC, and he hasn't yet. I could not understand why this new BBC, which we down at Riddle had heard all about, wasn't offering me the job of the chief engineer, but being modest, up. I hadn't done anything about it. So it's odd to realise, and I hadn't read this anywhere until I went to the BBC Written Archive Centre in Caversham and saw this, that actually Peter Eckersley's brother Roger technically beat Peter to being on the BBC, or at least his music did. So this classical piece, Fireflies, was on air just when John Reith was listening for the very first time. As for Arthur Burroughs then, the sort of nemesis I like to think of Peter Eckersley, but really just this straight-laced prophet of radio, with a very clear idea of how it should all happen. The opera broadcast wasn't his idea, but he was the one who enabled it and seized on it. And yet, Burroughs was summoned away for the week. So he was in Birmingham and Manchester, assessing their stations. Which is ironic, because in fact Birmingham closed to allow people to listen to the opera. Has it ever struck you that the young people of today have never known life without radio in the home. It's probably regarded along with lighting and heating as part of the accepted equipment of the modern house. Here's the station manager of that Birmingham station 5IT, Percy Edgar, with his thoughts on the mix between radio and live entertainment back in the early 20s. But to their parents and grandparents, it has meant a revolution. They can remember the time when the only music in the home was that made by the family group round the piano. Their appetite for drama could only be satisfied by an occasional journey to the theatre, or a visit of a barnstorming company to the village hall. Radio has changed all that. Today, the musical life of the younger generation has been so enriched by it that their knowledge and enjoyment of the great musical works is profound. If you doubt it, look in at one of the symphony concerts in your local town hall and try and count the number of young faces in the audience. That was Percy Edgar of 5IT. And this is Arthur Burroughs, formerly of Tuvalu, now of BBC HQ. Nobody could tell to what extent broadcasting would catch on, nor indeed whether it would take on at all. 
As for Arthur Burroughs there, missing those first opera broadcasts because he was upcountry, well, there was, in fact, a huge feature article all about him in Popular Wireless on the 6th of January, 1923. To a Lowe's, hello, man. An interview with Michael Egan. I made my way through a maze of corridors in Marconi House in search of Mr Burroughs, that being the off-duty name of the man whose voice has charmed so many ears of late. I found Mr Burroughs busily engaged in dealing with a mass of correspondence, but this did not prevent him from giving me a good deal of his valuable time. In reply to my question as to how Tuolo signals were being received in different parts of the country, Mr Burroughs surprised me with a list of outlying places from which excellent reports have been received. This list included the Shetland Islands, at which distant point readable signals have been received on a single valve. Another good record was established at Windermere, a spot which is well sheltered by neighbouring mountain ranges. Arthur Burroughs concluded, Broadcast programmes of the future will contain a large element of an educational and instructive nature. These items will be rendered in popular form. I should also like to say that we are making a special point of ensuring that nothing shall be broadcasted which is in any way unsuitable for the minds of the children who form such a large percentage of our audience. We leave it to parents, of course, to decide as to the advisability of allowing their children to listen in to the news bulletins. So exit Arthur Burroughs and enter the prima donna. Act two, the first aunt of auntie. Yes, before we get to the opera itself, the day before it, January the 7th, 1923, Auntie Beebe gained an aunt of its own, Aunt Sophie, the first aunt of the children's hour. As we've said previously, Vivienne Chatterton was technically the first female children's broadcaster. In fact, she was the first children's broadcaster on 2LO. But she wasn't an official radio aunt to join the radio uncles like Uncle Arthur, Uncle Caractacus, Uncle Rex, Rex Palmer, who was actually joining the BBC that very day. I hope you're following all this, by the way. There's a lot of names I'm well aware. But, uh, oh, just to confuse things, Aunt Sophie, as she was called, wasn't actually called Sophie. No, she was Cecil Dixon. Yeah, she's, she's intriguing, because they would always think she's a man, because she's called Cecil. <laughs> Whereas it would be Cecile normally, wouldn't it, with an E? At the yeah, end. I sort of want to pronounce it Cecile, even though it's written yeah, but I, Cecil. I, I, I imagine yeah. it's Cecil. To tell us more, here's the author of Behind the Wireless, A History of Early Women at the BBC, Dr Kate Murphy. She's got a very interesting history. If I remember, I think she was born in Fiji or somewhere uh, and, and, and lived in New Zealand and Australia and, and came over at some point um, as a young woman and ends up at the Royal College of Music. You know, she, she's obviously a great pianist. She'd met Stanton Jeffries, the 2LO boss, back at the Royal College of Music. And here she was now, working with him at the BBC. And I think she was probably working for the London station prior to it becoming BBC, I imagine. In my time at the Written Archive Centre, and indeed kudos to that fine place and its amazing staff, while I was there I spotted that she had broadcast back in the pre-BBC days, the summer of 1922. You'd have found Cecil Dixon standing in for Stanton Jeffries. This was the experimental stage when broadcasts were sent to charities and fates and the like. August 30th, 1922, for example, a test broadcast to The Hyde in Ingateston. The announcer was J.W. Farley. Uh, also performing, you'd have had Constance Howard, Dan Jones, Harry Dearth, Annie Reese. Cecil Dixon was also playing on September the 2nd uh, for the Enfield War Memorial Hospital broadcast. Again, J.W. Farley announcing instead of Arthur Burroughs. She broadcast on September the 5th for the Italian Technical Commission with uh, H. Kirby announcing. So yeah, I was unaware myself exactly how many other announcers there were in those pre-BBC days. Cecil Dixon was back here and there in November and December as the BBC was forming. Like uh, Sunday 3rd of December, she did solo piano of Chopin's waltz in A-flat and two etudes in G-flat. And she was often playing this Aeolian duo art pianola. 
Now, if you're not familiar with Aeolian duo art pianola, me neither. But there was a lot of it on the early BBC. And essentially, from what I can gather, this was the player piano, in other words, a machine piano that would play itself, but accompanied by a real piano player. So you get the human and the machine, which I guess is what broadcasting is all about. She is like the, the accompanist. Uh, again, she's such an important job because, mm. as you'll know, in, in early radio, there's all this, you have a programme and then there's like having dead space on air. So the accompanist would, would be playing the piano just to kind of fill time. Obviously, they would have space on air because they, they wanted people to reset after each programme so that it didn't become this background noise, you know, but there was an appointment to listen idea. But the accompanist was a very important role because you filled, if anything went wrong, the accompanist would be playing the piano. Mm. And she was obviously very skilled, but she also went on to Children's Hour as Aunt Sophie. So she had this um, kind of strange dual role, but again, a very interesting character. All of that then brings us to January the 7th, when Cecil Dixon made her debut as Aunt Sophie. But there, these aunts were everywhere. And I know Dorothea Barcroft was quite was a big person at, at, as Auntie Dorothy up in mm. Birmingham. Of course, they had the uncles, these uncles and aunts. It, it just shows this kind of early, very intimate idea of, of early radio. I love the idea that at London, it was Arthur Burroughs and Cecil Lewis who were the, like the two main, you know, the senior managers mucking about. They were doing the children's hour initially. They should probably bring that back. You know, whenever they get these new DGs in from, from politics nowadays, they should say, you can be director general, but you've also got to go on the children's programme every day and do a story, you know, <laughs> and uh, bring them back down to, to ground level. That night then, as well as being Aunt Sophie in the children's hour, your solo pianist later into the night is Miss Cecil Dixon, Aunt Sophie under her different guise. But the next day, a far greater musical debut would happen. The first ever outside broadcast. The finale, A Night at the Opera. The Pall Mall Gazette. Tonight's broadcasting programme. In addition to the usual broadcasting programme tonight, parts of the British National Opera Company's performance of Mozart's Magic Flute at Covent Garden will be radiated from the London station. Further selections nightly will be given in future, if the present experiment proves a success. Now, January the 8th was also the first day of Miss Isabel Shields starting as Reith's secretary. We referred to her a couple of episodes ago. Rex Palmer, as I say, joined as Uncle Rex on the children's hour. Mr Palmer had only just joined the company and was a little strange to the work. Cecil Lewis. The opera transmissions therefore devolved on Mr Stanton Jeffries and myself. The day's work and the children's hour over, we would snatch up our hats and make for a tavern nearby to discuss the evening's work while munching meringues and cream, for that was our favourite dish. The Tuolo Orchestra as well were playing before the opera broadcast happened with Friedman's Slavonic Rhapsody. Yep, me neither. At eight o'clock then, broadcasting left the studio for the very first time with Act One of The Magic Flute, live from the Royal Opera House. This then is what Cecil Lewis wrote in his book, the first book on broadcasting, Broadcasting from Within. I well remember the occasion. We all assembled in a little room on the top floor of Marconi House, where a loudspeaker stood on the table. Suddenly, with a loud click, it was thrown into circuit, and a confused babble of noises was let loose. At first indistinguishable, it soon became apparent that we were hearing the talk and rustling of programmes in the auditorium. Finally, there was a burst of clapping which died down to dead silence, and was followed by two sharp raps. A second later, the huge orchestra had leapt into its stride, swelled up to a great crash of brass and cymbals, which could be heard all down the corridor at Marconi House. Our excitement was immense. Now I'm reading broadcasting from within to our patrons and matrons on our Patreon page. Patreon.com slash Paul Carenza. 
Join the superhero level to see Paul read for you, broadcasting from within. With my explanatory interruptions, filling in some gaps as we go, and occasionally correcting Cecil Lewis when he gets his dates wrong. That does happen now and then. But he gives a great account of what happened at that very first night of the opera. So this is Cecil Lewis. Many people imagining opera to be a dull and dreary thing were converted in an evening. Many others who had never heard or expected to hear opera as long as they lived had it brought to their hospital or bedside. Yes, but they couldn't run away from it. Now, if you think that because of all this opera, the 2-0 orchestra could have the night off, well, no, they played early in the evening, and there they didn't get to go home either, because they were back on from Marconi House for the interval. 9.15 to 10pm, it was this rather small 2-0 orchestra. Must have sounded rather odd in comparison to the full-sized orchestra of the British National Opera Company from Covent Garden. The 2-0 orchestra played to their strengths, though, so they deliberately played small. They had a banjo solo from Charles Stainer. You can't replicate that from the Opera House, can you? They had contralto Doris Smurden as well. And then at 10pm, it was back to the Royal Opera House for more from the Magic Flute. But what many listeners particularly enjoyed was not so much the music, although that was a huge part of it, but also the rustling, the audience, all part of the atmosphere. The Times. Thousands heard of their homes excerpts from the performance of the Magic Flute at Covent Garden. Not the least entertaining feature was that listeners... Oh, they don't call them listeners in at this point. That's unusual. ...while waiting for the overture to begin could hear the subdued talk of the audience, the rustling of programmes and the burst of applause at the entry of the conductor. The munching of popcorn. Do you have popcorn at the opera? I don't know. I've never been to one. But I've heard it on the radio. And so did they. To conclude the night, Charles Stainer's banjo, live again from Marconi House, quietening things down. Now, John Reith did not listen or attend. He wasn't at home with his radio set because he didn't have a radio set. He'd only heard the radio for the first time two days earlier. He wasn't at Marconi House. He wasn't at the Opera House. In fact, he went to a, a restaurant or a club, I'm not sure which, called Secrets with some friends, according to his diary. I'm pretty sure that Secrets is the fictitious Paul Daniels Magic Club from the 1990s, the world's most amazing nightclub, I'm pretty sure, that Daniels claimed. Reith was at a different Secrets. Here's a chap who was engineer at the time, a later chief engineer, Harold Bishop. I remember the first outside broadcast from Covent Garden. I can't remember the opera, but I expect it's in the record somewhere. Uh, and it was a great thrill to hear the music coming from Covent Garden for the first time, to hear it at a distance. This from the story of broadcasting by that man stuck in the Midlands and the North during these opera broadcasts, Arthur Burroughs. The opera's intelligibility to the masses was helped by the use of a supplementary microphone in the prompter's box, where the story of the play was outlined by Captain Lewis before each act. The entries and exits of the principal characters were similarly announced from time to time. For night one, the magic flute, Cecil Lewis did not dare interrupt. But as the nights rolled on and the opera performances continued, we decided not only to give the story of the acts of the particular opera we were transmitting, but also to make some interpolation from the prompter's box at the side of the stage during the actual performance. Cecil Lewis and Stanton Jeffries then were collaborating about how to deliver the plot for these operas. It was a fair question. Would people just want to hear the music or would they need to be able to follow the story as well? Well, Lewis and Jeffries really thought that people needed a bit of help. So they would repair to the pub over the road and over a plate of beer and meringues, don't know how the beer landed on the plate, Stanton Jeffries would detail what happened in the musical, Lewis would write it down and they would rush off to their respective places, Lewis to Marconi House, Jeffries to the Opera House, ready to interrupt the opera with what was going on. In these cases, the procedure was as follows. Having told the public what was going to happen, I would repair to the transmitting room where there was a direct telephone line to Mr Jeffries at Covent Garden. 
I would call him up on the telephone with the switch connecting the opera house to the transmitting set in my hand. Think of the engineers letting us near their switches. What would they say to us today? Mr. Jeffreys was following the music on the stage with his end of the telephone clapped to his ear and when the precise moment came he would say, Are you ready? Stand by. Shoot. In went the switch. Out went the opera. She's up, I would call back. And then, immensely pleased with ourselves and feeling that the world really could not go on without us, we would regale each other with the gossip of the moment, how the soprano looked when she came off stage and what the conductor said when the chorus miscued in the last act. The Daily Telegraph on the 22nd of January 1923 commented on Cecil Lewis's ghostly voice interjecting these remarks. The value of such aids is disputable. Too often they lead to laughter in the wrong place. Cecil Lewis. But bearing in mind that the vast majority of our listeners had never listened to opera before and would have the greatest difficulty in following the plot, I maintained then, and I still maintain, that it was justified. And for the full works of what Cecil Lewis had to say about this opera night, link in the show notes to hear me read you Cecil Lewis' full account, as well as his complete book, Broadcasting From Within, over on our Patreon page. It all helps support this podcast, keep us in books, research, web hosting, and the like. Here's another snippet, though, before we move on. Cecil Lewis, Broadcasting From Within. I know it's wrong. I know big things can't go on in that way. But isn't it preferable, after all, to the watertight compartments and the petty differences that come later in the well-built organisations? It was a democracy, short-lived, alas, a democracy of young pioneers, doomed, like all the pioneering of youth, to come up against the rigidity of age, discipline and experience, doomed to be swept quickly into the inexorable mills of civilization and organisation, and forgotten. We must content ourselves with the memory that once, for a very short time, it existed, that even in the heart of London, civilised and organised to death, there was a sudden flash, a gesture, made by a handful of silly young men who had, with the aid of a microphone, the ear of the world. And the irony of the situation is that the world hardly realised what they were up to. Great days, not easily forgotten. The Daily Express wrote, It was the first time in this country the grand opera has come under the ever-growing magic of wireless. No theatrical manager could have wished for a more wonderfully successful first night. From north, south, east and west came messages of delight over the old-fashioned telephone. Sure enough, the opera was heard clearly in Madrid, in Sweden, Denmark, Holland, Belgium. Even, popular wireless magazine says, distant parts of Scotland, who were still, of course, waiting for their own radio station. There were 600 letters of appreciation each day, and the sale of apparatus shot up. The press were starting to take notice. This was perhaps a third or fourth wave in broadcasting having an effect on society and pushing people to go out and buy radio sets or make them. The Daily News. Triumphantly successful and fitting that the first opera broadcast by wireless should be this enchanting work of genius by Mozart, with its melodies of liquid silver bubbling up like fountains, its airy grace, its brilliant fun. I think this was also fitting, though, because the plot of the Magic Flute has our hero fear a community and then join it. And that's pretty much what was about to happen the next night, Tuesday 9th of January, when a certain somebody listened to the second opera of the season, Hansel and Gretel, by Engelbert Humperdinck. Not that one. The person listening, the person affected, the person who was anti-professional broadcasting but would join it was Peter Eckersley. Of course, we started to listen. Well, the lucky people were able to um, put a microphone, a Western electric microphone with a stretched diaphragm, a carbon microphone, into the opera, into the Covent Garden. 
And all at once one put on a pair of headphones and was aware that something miraculous was happening. Because you suddenly were in the atmosphere of Covent Garden. You suddenly were conscious that this was music, that this had potentialities. Peter Eckersley later put it, I have never forgotten the thrill with which I suddenly sensed the feeling of a large auditorium and was translated from the prosaic interior of the hut into the front row of the stalls at Covent Garden. When the music itself came on, I sat absolutely amazed for three quarters of an hour. And he'd only tuned in because he was getting ready to broadcast himself from the hut in Rittle on 2MT and first thought he'd check out what the rivals were up to. And it was from that moment that the first hearing of those opera broadcasts that I personally suddenly felt, look, I want to be in broadcasting. This is something with a tremendous potential. He was convinced by what he heard on January the 9th. January the 10th in The Times. The broadcasting by wireless of grand opera performances at Covent Garden, carried out for the first time on Monday, repeated last night, suggests two interesting questions. One is what attitude theatrical managers and producers generally are likely to adopt towards the innovation. The other concerns the future of the electrophone. Ah yes, the electrophone. This was an invention that really enabled you to pick up the telephone and, and hear someone radiate to you a concert. Been on for about 30 years across London, had about 2,000 subscribers. So in some theatres they had a microphone at the front of the stage and it would be sent to subscribers' phone lines. But it was increasingly becoming a defunct technology. And yet the electrophone company, bless them, greeted broadcasting with optimism. One of the directors said, It would be a long time before broadcasting by wireless of entertainments and church services attained the degree of perfection now achieved by the electrophone. Maybe not quite so long after all. One benefit of the electrophone, though, was you could choose what to listen to. You could dial in to different performances. Well, radio, after all, only had a menu of one dish. So the technology meant that these companies and different media were still jostling for their new place in this world. One George Grossmith thought that the radio version would serve as an advertisement for the real thing live. That was the hope, after all. To anyone worrying about the effect on the live industry, it was pointed out that cinema showings hadn't adversely affected the ticket sales of theatres. So January the 10th, you could hear Pagliacci, just the last act. Quite late, actually, 9.15 to 11pm. January the 11th, you'd hear Siegfried, acts 1 to 3 from 7.15pm. Again, Cecil Lewis would introduce each act. Stanton Jeffries would be off stage covering the silences, saying, Mephistopheles has come into the garden. Yes, you wouldn't miss a moment. Siegfried enters with his horse. Those nerves of leaving radio silence were certainly coming in. Arguably, Radio 3 today enjoys their silences. So this started going down rather well with certain corners of the press. And one specific incident convinced one particular journalist. The Times music critic was unfortunately ill and unable to attend and review Siegfried, the fourth of the opera's broadcast. So a friend of his set up a wireless receiver with a horn. An aerial was attached to a third floor window. There was an earth line connected to a cold water tap. And then through the horn came the sound of part of the opera, Siegfried. The Times music critic could actually review from his sickbed. And suddenly people who were never really bothered by broadcasting before began to see its use in the home. Not just an experimenter's hobby, but the latest must-have domestic item. The opera season continued January the 12th with The Marriage of Figaro. January the 13th. The whole of two operas to be formed at Covent Garden today, said the Times. Hansel and Gretel and Faust, broadcast by wireless from the London Broadcasting Station. 
January the 18th, Valkyrie. And there, Cecil Lewis and Stanton Jeffries' announcements stopped after one particular listener had had enough. This from Arthur Burroughs' The Story of Broadcasting. The idea, however, did not find wholehearted support in really musical circles, and we received a letter one morning threatening death by shooting if any interpolations were made during Valkyrie. As our days were already lively enough without any shooting incident, Valkyrie passed uninterrupted. Then January the 19th, The Marriage of Figaro, January the 20th, Faust, so some repeating operas at this point. That was what happened in opera season. There was Madame Butterfly on January the 23rd, La Boheme on the 27th with Damnelli Melba and Harrods opened late, piping the concert into their restaurant. When the season concluded, Popular Wireless opened their January the 27th show with the words, The conclusion of the Covent Garden opera season last Saturday must have been noted by all listeners in with real regret, for it is seldom the man in the street has the opportunity of hearing such a feast of fine vocal and instrumental music. I can hear some of my readers saying, but what about the gramophone? Yes, but you never get the atmosphere on a gramophone. You never hear the clapping, the orchestra tuning. You don't get the sensation of listening to real opera played as you listen. There's a big difference. When Dame Nellie Melba, yes, that one who kick-started broadcasting in June of 1920, when she concluded the opera season, she was presented with a huge bouquet in the shape of a house, complete with birds flitting on the roof, an aerial sticking out by the chimney pots. There was a label attached from your unseen listeners in. At least at this concert, she had a live audience as well. Back in June 1920, it was just her and the engineers. Arthur Burroughs was there for that. Unfortunately, he was missing this one. The opera season concluded with a broadcast from the director of the British National Opera, giving a speech encouraging listeners to buy actual tickets. Now, it wasn't popular with everybody. Just like Dame Nellie Melba's concert three years early was maybe too popular, and therefore causing some enemies, equally many in the arts world were encouraging the opera singers to boycott this BBC broadcast, and future ones. So there were barring clauses in contracts with booking agents. There's a fear of replacing the live industry. And this lasted until late 1924. Eventually, the Theatrical Managers Association signed an agreement to allow the BBC to relay from a theatre for 30 minutes every fortnight. All through January 1923, you'd hear lots of opera on the BBC. As soon as the opera season was out the way, the BBC realised the British National Opera Company was one of the few allies in the live entertainment world. So there were only 10 theatrical or musical broadcasts from February to April 23. There were only five from April to December. It would be another two and a bit years, April 1925, till the first full studio opera was broadcast. That's Carmen. In the meantime, when opera season closed, the British National Opera Company singers would tour BBC provincial studios giving performances where they were. Still, the BNOC and the BBC formed a rare alliance among live entertainment producers. The British National Opera Company's secretary actually took credit for launching the BBC, pretty much. He later told Reith, It was the broadcasting of our operas which did much to establish your company on a firm basis. Reith actually agreed pretty much. Within the year, the uh, opera company got into financial trouble, so the BBC stepped in to help them. We know that Reith bore grudges, but he clearly also remembered and rewarded loyalty. So there were double the licence applications in January than that of November and December combined. Valve sets too rocketed in sales, furthering the reach and indeed the quality. People wanted to hear not just the broadcast, but the best version of the broadcast. This first outside broadcast would set the standard for future broadcasts, including a popular nativity play called Bethlehem from a church in Cornwall, sound engineers would visit the seaside to send sound effects live at exactly the right time for a radio drama set at the seaside. 
You'd hear the wash of waves and the stomping of pebbles just at the exact moment, live from Brighton Beach, to help your radio play. And so it had convinced the public, corners of the press, even the future chief engineer. But more than that, it showed what was possible with broadcasting. Once you've been outside the studio once, you can keep on going. Further opera broadcasts, theatre broadcasts, the broadcast of a nightingale and a cello from a garden in Surrey. We will get to that, trust me. And then one day, Wimbledon, the Olympics, and at time of recording, war zones. Those fearless journalists, engineers and producers that we see today broadcasting from the unfortunate thick of the action, that miracle of broadcasting, all stems from that broadcast in Covent Garden. The technology may have moved on massively in 100 years, but the principle's the same. Once you leave the studio, you can immerse your audience wherever you take them. Next time, if Arthur Burroughs was up country checking out Birmingham and Manchester, then maybe it's time we checked out Birmingham and Manchester too. Because, yes, the broadcasting wasn't just coming from London, but from the Midlands, from the Northwest, from Rittle for a few more weeks, but also from Holland. Yes, next time, filling us in on the story of the Dutch concerts and radio pioneer Hanzo Itzerda, Gordon Bathgate is our guest. Might be the Royal Opera House this episode, but next time, music from elsewhere even overseas on the British Broadcasting Century. Thank you for joining us this episode. If you've enjoyed what you hear, you can find more on our Facebook groups, on our Twitter page. We tweet lots of things there. And indeed, if you'd like to hear more from Broadcasting From Within by Cecil Lewis, patreon.com slash paulcarenza. Join at our superstar level and you will see me read to you with occasional interruptions the full works of that recently out of copyright book. Speaking of copyright... The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer. Any BBC content is used with kind permission. BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Company. All rights reserved. Many archive clips are public domain, as far as we know, due to age. Although some rights may belong to other owners that we can't trace. It's all rather tricky when it's that long ago. If that's you, we humbly bow to your every whim. Clips are very removable, so do just say. And a huge thanks and credit to the BBC Written Archive Centre. Aren't they marvellous? Stay informed, educated and entertained. Join us next time for the Dutch concerts on the British Broadcasting Century.